0: There is a ridiculousness and absurdity to our, not just legalism, which says work your way to heaven, but our tribalism that says, and you've got to look like us, and dress like us, and interpret every little nuance of the Bible just like us, and read the same dead guys as us, and listen to the same music as us, you better smoke a pipe, you better not smoke a pipe, whatever your regulations are, are they keeping you from Jesus? It's It should make us mad
1: what's up guys i'm here to tell you this episode is brought to you by crowd health crowd health is a new fast-growing tech-enabled Well capitalized community powered alternative to traditional health insurance founded by Andy Schoonover, a proven founder and entrepreneur with a successful track record, including a one hundred million dollar plus exit. By the way, Andy's been on this podcast in the past. Crowd health uses the power of crowdfunding member ratings unlimited choice, and huge cash pay discounts to provide a simple, considerably less expensive solution to managing your medical bills. CrowdHealth gives you full agency and sticks with you no matter where you move or what jobs you take on. You've heard of Big Pharma, but you may not know, Big Insurance is actually the man behind the curtain. With 12 of the last 15 heads of the FDA taking jobs in Big Pharma and 64% of its funding coming from private industry, Don't hold your breath waiting for the government to save the day. It's safe to say our system's broken. It's time to take your well-being into your own hands, and CrowdHealth helps you do just that. You'll pay into your individual account monthly, and if you ever want to leave, you'll simply pay a $250 closing fee, and they will return the entire balance in your account to you because it's your account. Because it's crowdfunded, we all have a vested interest in each other's health. They even cover up to $300 a year in routine wellness visits. So far, for every $100 members have paid into their accounts, an average of only $30 has been paid out. So you can expect to see your money grow in your account over time. Take that, big insurance. Join today by visiting joincrowdhealth.com and using the promo code KLP to pay only $99 a month for the first three months. That's joincrowdhealth.com. Promo code KLP. Join crowdhealth.com. Get you some. Okay. You All good right. to go? Yeah, man. Let's go. John Watson, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. Uh, it's good, th- good to have you. Well, no, it's welcome good to have to my you. Podcast, it's so <laughs> yeah. nice to have you here. You know what? I bet if you had this podcast, it would be way better. Uh, no, I highly um, doubt it. It
0: would be f- far fewer episodes yeah. than really exists.
1: <laughs> um exists. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. One of the things that has been interesting working at a church is seeing how busy pastors are. I think pastors tend to be maybe way busier than uh, most might assume. Um, you have prepping for sermons. You have prepping for teaching. You have pastoral care. You have trying to handle the organization. You have you have a lot. And you started church, uh, when was it? One year ago. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. One year ago. Mm-hmm. Any surprises on that front? So far, uh, everything's I'm a sure surprise there has to be.
0: when you're a rookie, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's no way to play ball without playing ball. And so you're not a pastor until you're a pastor. And then everything, in some sense, is you're unable to quantify it or qualify it. So you can describe pastoral ministry, but until you experience the weight of um, looking people in the eye whose souls you will give an account for before Christ. <laughs> There's no way to prepare for that, mm-hmm. so in some sense, everything's been a surprise. But you're right that um, some people just don't, we don't think about the kind of Monday through Saturday reality of our pastors. So yep. even my mom, who lives about two and a half hours from us, um, asked me several months ago. So what do you what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm a pastor. She's like, oh, I know, but so you preach, but like is that all? <laughs> like, no, yeah. it's, it's not all. As a church planter, you're the bookkeeper and you're, you know, you're the treasurer and you're the administrator and you're the marketing guy and you're the yep. website guru and you know, yep. all those things. But there, uh, what could be better? Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, it's going really well for you guys.
0: That's what they tell me.
1: I mean, it yeah. seems to be going very well for you guys.
0: The Lord has yeah. been kind to give a growth that is not um, sensational. Mm-hmm. sensational growth scares me mm-hmm. quite a lot, mm-hmm. but reasonable, steady, healthy growth, um, feels good. It's yeah. satisfying.
1: Well, the one thing that it sounded like you have some boundaries around is protecting your evenings. And one of the things that I've noticed too, I'm not a pastor, but just working at a church is, you know, people tend to have jobs mm-hmm. and then the church stuff you know, on their end, works better like nights and weekends, right. but the inverse is true where it's like working there is my job or working there is your job, and so then if you're working there during the day and then doing all the evenings and weekend stuff, then yeah. it's just all the time. Right. And uh, you blocked out a night a week or something like that that's helping you have some boundaries around that.
0: Yeah, what we've done uh, for the last year is Fridays are family day, and we don't we don't see people. <laughs> we'll go to Costco, right? Because hot dogs. Yeah. But there's no, there's no social, because as a pastor, you know, your, your ministry and your social life, the lines are very, very blurred. So when does hanging out with your friends who are also in your church become work? And so to protect that, uh, that family rest, we blocked off a day where it's just the family. That was Fridays. Saturdays were open to social engagements, but it's no work meetings, no phone calls, that sort of thing. Um, today is the first day that my wife and I agreed to shift that to Saturdays and Mondays. So, um, I'll let you know in a couple months how that's,
1: Oh, (laughs) so you're shifting away from Friday being the family day Mm -hmm. to Saturday and Monday, right? The downside on Saturday is going to be, it's the day before you preach. That's going to be in your mind a little bit. Yes. The upside to Monday is it's kind of like the big day's over and then you have that, you can really relax then probably Sunday night and into Monday.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. I, I think, what tends to happen on Mondays is kind of a paradoxical reality where on the one hand I'm jazzed from Sunday, right? I mean, you know, the feeling where you go to church and the Lord wakes something up in you and you're just like, ah, I've got energy to spend for the kingdom. Right? So as a pastor, I, I, I want to go, I get that as well. And I want to go expend that energy Mm -hmm. and start sending emails and writing the next sermon and doing all these things. And on the other hand, I'm never more drained than on a Monday. I'm just so tired, uh, soul weariness, you know? So I'm going to have to die to the, the excitement and the desire to get after it and live in the rest of Christ
1: on a Monday. And I, I'm seeing that as a holy challenge. (laughs) Yeah. So the get after it feeling, is that Sunday afternoon or Monday or both? I think it's both. Yeah. The Sunday
0: afternoon feeling bleeds into the Monday for me. Um, But I, you know, I'm just a rookie. We'll see how this goes in in the next few months.
1: Well, this is, this is entirely different um, because I don't preach or anything like that. Sunday is still like a bit of work day, although it doesn't really feel that way. But, um, but I think this has nothing to do with like working at a church, but there is something about like going to church on Sunday mornings where Sunday afternoons often I will like just, I just get this little itch to do something creative, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, or sometimes read or whatever, but I feel like energy on a Sunday afternoon. I don't really want to care to be like around people all afternoon, but, right. um, anyhow, thank you for your time. I want to yeah. make good use of it. Cause I know if you cool. got home early, you wouldn't probably complain. <laughs> um, did not have this on the radar when we scheduled this, by the way, it is probably 87 degrees in my little garage right now. So That's I apologize warm. for that. It's very warm in here. Um, Hey, thankfully it's summer, basically. I think we might have skipped spring. But um, spring is well on its way here in Tennessee, and it is like 87 degrees late April, which is fantastic. I couldn't be happier. It's but my studio is in my garage, and it's stinking hot in here. So that's what's happening. But um, I'll get an AC unit at some point, because there's no way we're going to make it through the summer. Anyhow, I did not have this in mind when I scheduled this conversation with you, because there were some things I wanted to talk about. But then in the meantime... Uh, this past Sunday, Tom Cox preached at Emanuel, uh, our church, Emmanuel Church in Nashville. People can Google it and go check it out. Uh, TJ was out of town, and Tom Cox preached. Did you know this, by the way? I
0: heard that. Uh, he's one of my board of directors. Oh, cool. Or, well, he's not the board. He is a director on the board. And Tuesday night, we had a meeting. And I heard that he preached, so it's on my list
1: to go find that. Yes, I mean, Tom, I think Tom and Amy Cox Cox were founding members of Emmanuel, I think. think that's right. And he's been a long-time elder, and this is the first time that we've been attending, which was late 2016, that that he preached. Mm -hmm. And it was really amazing. I suggest people check it out if they want to. Anyhow, he preached on Ephesians 4, 17 to uh, 24, and... I hit you up, I think it was just today, via text on, do you know anything about the culture of the Gentiles that this scripture passage is referencing? Because we read through the scripture that is going to be preached every week in our service planning meeting. And so the Tuesday before Tom preached this passage, we were reading through the passage, the staff was, and I just found myself like wanting to know more Uh, verse 17, you know, it's talking about, you know, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And I'm like, how how did the Gentiles walk? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to know more about their culture and um, what life was like for them. Like kind of picture how the picture, what was going on in that day, you know, because I do feel like I don't really know. Yeah. Uh and so I asked you this was very last minute um if you had any idea about some of those things and if and if you'd be interested or up to to share some of those. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Um maybe it might make sense just to read Ephesians 4:17 to 24 is kind of the little chunk there, right?
0: Yep. Uh to 17 to yeah,
1: 24 and then there's but a bit also, of it
0: from 25 to 32. Yeah. Which is the outworking of like what Paul's really getting at.
1: Yeah. Do you think it makes sense to read the whole thing right now or should we read half of it and then the other half in I a second? I think let's
0: start with uh, one, uh 17 to 24. Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. If you don't mind, go ahead and read it and then um then let's let's dig in on on that in the Greek, right? Please. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now this I say and testify in the Lord
1: Two, two things the one thing that uh, Sam alberry mentioned in that read through in the service planning meeting was he he kind of noted that they were ignorant because of the hardness mm-hmm. of their heart their hearts weren't hard because they were ignorant yeah that's like, oh right. that's interesting um, there's a there's a almost a darkness to that mm-hmm. in and a dignity at the same time, you know, because it's not like their hearts were hardened because they were so dumb, but rather that they were ignorant because their hearts were hardened. Um, And then this was, I'll just lay all my cards on the table um, because as I was reading through this, you know, I mean, you tell me, but I would assume the highest and best purpose of a passage like this is to apply it to our own heart's, we have all sinned. We have all, to some level, done all of these things listed in here. And for a, a believer in Christ, if you have that righteousness uh, through the blood of Jesus, that you there's going to be a before and an after in your life. Sorry. And that's probably the, the highest and best use of reading this passage is applying it that way. Mm-hmm. I was, I was having a hard time not noticing some similarities between this passage and what's happening in our current culture right. and that's what I wanted to know more about was um, their 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 culture of the day I mean when you read through this like if you had told me hey this was written last year for modern day American culture I wouldn't have been shocked. Um, and so tell us about what life was like back then.
0: Well, as a non first century expert, uh, but you know, someone who's studied a bit on it, um, I can tell you that Ephesus was a very important city in that part of the world. Uh, it was a port city, so it's on the water. Uh, and you know, if you read Plato's, the Republic, which is worth a read. Um, you'll you'll start to see that port cities become places that are a convergence of ideas, and so uh, because you know ships are coming in from all over the known world into port cities, and so it's the nexus point um, where ideas are meeting and conversing together, and so port cities tend to be. Um, more liberal you can see that today where the metropolis is the modern port city right it, When now we don't need water to connect disconnected peoples we need airports
1: yeah and we need skyscrapers except right? a lot of cities still are on rivers if you think about it it's very true it's like almost That's all right. of them that i'm yeah. aware
0: of yep. right because that the it's really airfare and the train that made the difference uh for us not needing water for those things and so if you look at, say, Nashville, Tennessee, is it politically more liberal or conservative? Well, it's more conservative than Seattle. <laughs> it's more liberal than, I don't know, Springfield, Missouri, right? The uh, the more rural you get, the more kind of removed and smaller you get, the fewer ideas you have to bring to the table from different parts of the world. So Ephesus is a place that's gathering up in its proverbial arms all of these ideas and religions and philosophies and teachings from all over the known world particularly the Roman Empire and that is going to have a pretty major influence on
1: them and what there was so there's trade so that's like a ship port you said mm-hmm. so there's trade coming in from just wherever yeah like, all over yeah
0: basically everything Roman and then the things on the fringe of Roman that are probably going to be Roman soon right it, it's um it was so important that they used to dredge the, um, I don't know if it was, it wasn't a canal so much, but the port didn't have strong enough currents from what I was reading to wash away kind of the sludge mm. that just accumulates on like river mouths. And so they would have to manually dredge it just to keep boats able to come into this place. Wow. Be, and they had to do that incredible feat of work for 2000 years ago wow. and the equipment they had because their culture, their identity, their economic prosperity relied on the port, relied on the convergence of ideas. And so right away, if it strikes you as modern and relevant and contextually appropriate to today, that's because we live in a port city, so to speak. Uh-huh. Right? And the internet is the new train and plane in that it makes the convergence of ideas possible and almost intrusively present everywhere. There's nowhere you can go that you're not getting bombarded with this. Now, the difference is if the internet is like a port or an airport, we're like TSA that we get to block out people that don't think like we want them to think. Sure. That's not fair to the TSA. You know, for the record, thank you for all of your service. Yes. But you know what I'm saying, right? That we get to be more exclusive about what kind of content we receive in or we think that we have that kind of autonomy. Mm -hmm. So that was a big part of life in Ephesus. Um, It was a capital in the Roman empire. It was a big deal. There were a lot of gods worshiped, a lot of paganism, um, a lot of syncretism where you kind of blend religious ideas together and just pretend that their mutual exclusivities don't matter. And you just kind of make it all work. You fit it all together. So you get to be, you get to be in the cult of Artemis and you get to be in the cult of Zeus, and you get to be in the cult of whatever you know, whatever your ancestral religion is. You just add them all onto your life. And if this is sounding like New Age spirituality, I don't think that's an accident. Um, there's something in our current moment where it's very in vogue, I think, to take the best from uh, Buddhism and the best from Islam and the best from Christianity, and and you you blend these things together into this sort of spiritual whole 30 diet Mm -hmm. that suits your needs that you think you're gonna do really well on and i think that that's remarkably dangerous Mm -hmm. because each of those have exclusive claims that can't stand with the other
1: yes yep and uh what time period was this written do we know uh can you place this in history Someone can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know off the top of my head. I know that most of Paul's letters were written from Ephesus. He spent a lot of time there. He did a lot of preaching and a lot of writing from Ephesus.
1: And Um, and this would have been, please pardon my ignorance here, but this would have been after Jesus had died and rose again. After Jesus.
0: Yeah, we're probably talking in the 20 to 40 years after the
1: resurrection. Okay. Okay. 1862. A.D. 62. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the one. So Paul's writing this. Paul wrote this, right? Yep. He's yep. writing this in 62 years after Christ.
0: It'll be 30, about 30 years after the resurrection. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's almost a full kind of Jewish generation of 40 years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. A young man's lifetime. So uh, it's a port city. Uh, it's syncretistic. A lot of religion's happening. Artemis is the main attraction, though. Right, the the cult of Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, a big big uh, monument to Artemis, huge temple to Artemis, the main, the city revolved around Artemis in a particular way. So Artemis was, uh, if I remember right, the Greeks called her Artemis, the Romans called her Diana. She was a fertility goddess, mm. and um, fertility goddesses often got a, a kind of a brunt of the worship because they can get you what you really want, which is essentially like offspring in the ancient world is wealth offspring are are wealth they are security they are you know happiness they are social status so fertility gods and goddesses mattered a lot and so you have this Artemis who is kind of the adopted matron of this city so i think it's acts 19 paul goes to ephesus starts preaching the gospel of jesus christ And converting people who then turn from Artemis to Jesus, Mm. right? And because of the nature of this particular capital, their economy was tied up in their religion. And anytime you get money involved in a religion, uh, the religion stops being about the religion and starts being about the money, right? Like Jesus talks about money as a really good thing to use to further the kingdom and a really bad thing to serve as a master. So it's kind of like when modern day institutions just get too big to fail. And now we have to start protecting the institution rather than the institution serving the people, which is what they're meant to do. So the institution of the religion of Artemis gets too big to fail. Paul challenges the, or sort of uh, puts cracks in the foundation of it by preaching the gospel. People start to turn away and the silversmiths, in Ephesus begin to riot because their trade, their economy is making trinkets and idols of Artemis. So if people start following Jesus, they stop buying these trinkets and the whole city's economy will crumble. That's their fear. Wow. It's a a remarkably prescient and modern idea.
1: Yeah, the idea of religion being tied in with the economy is very interesting and it's also not it's also hard not to think about the current day present situation. This. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's your water, bro. Yep. Yep. Um yeah. and here's more if you need more. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. Um Yeah, I think I'm maybe I am extrapolating far too much here but some of the some of the current cultural influences feels like that it's almost like a religion of sorts and it's like going into the corporations it is a religion it is a religion (laughs) yes okay
0: i would say so yeah we have gods that we worship we have religious duties that we do and things that we say and ceremonies that we enact that signify that we are worshiping this god I mean, we're certainly spiritualizing the language, but the idea of idolatry permeates our modern age. We just don't bow down to actual little wood and stone and metal Mm -hmm. objects, but there are still things that we created things that we center our lives around that then control us and become so big in our hearts that we can't let them fail. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: now we have to serve them.
1: So you raise an interesting point about us being in Nashville. You know, that was not something that was on my mind when I was thinking about this. And so it's possible that depends even where you're at in this particular country, someone may read through this and maybe not have some of the same thoughts or questions that, that I was having. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, they may because a lot of this, I feel like, has hit mainstream, the mainstream news, you know. Um the mainstream media, I don't I don't think it, I think people from most parts of the country are fairly, if we told them like what was going on in Nashville, a place where culture ideas are spread and shared and so forth, I don't think it would be a shock to most people, right? right. They may not be experiencing yeah. it maybe in their small town and wherever that may be, Montana, but they're probably aware of it. Yeah. Um. Okay, so when he says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, is he referring to, who's he referring to by the Gentiles there? Just people that are not Jews or are not Christians? Who's he referencing there?
0: Yeah, so the question is, um, does he mean all Gentiles, or does he mean Gentiles who don't follow Jesus? And I think, to me, when I read Ephesians 4 and the rest of Ephesians First of all, Ephesians is about Jew and Gentile. Like, that's kind of the main topic on the table for conversation here. Uh, so it permeates the whole letter. And when he uses the phrase Gentile, or the word Gentile here, it doesn't seem to fit with Gentile Christians. He's not asking them to get more Jewish in their Christianity. He's asking them to get less pagan. So I think what he means are by Gentiles, and, and the, the word in Greek is for, it's peoples, ethne, it's the, it's just peoples. It's peoples oh. of the world who aren't belonging to God's family. So he's saying, look, there's a there's a people. There are lots of peoples who don't belong to Jesus. And then there's a people that do. Don't live like you don't belong to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the heartbeat of what he's saying here. And He, he gets at that with the le- clothing language of put off the old self and put on the new self, which we can talk about at some point, I think.
1: Yep. So, and he says, in the futility of their minds, that mm-hmm. is very scary to me. Mm-hmm. Why because, is that scary to well, you? Well, that seems to me like one of the worst positions you could be in as a human.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you have these thoughts, they're futile. I mean, I, if, if you have any color on the word futile or the futility there yeah. of, of their mind, but I'm thinking it means it's worthless. So, like... They have these thoughts. They have these ways of being. These this worldview, the, their ways of thinking doesn't matter. Completely useless, futile. Yeah. Is that an accurate way of? Because if that is accurate, that's that's what's scary to me. Is like that seems to be. That seems to be one of the scariest positions to be in as a human because it's just worthless. Yeah, and but you didn't think it was worthless, but it actually is worthless. Right. Completely meaningless. Is that an accurate way to...
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting word. It's good that you picked up on that. Um, There's a lot of debate about what it means. But if you go and look up where that Greek word is used in the New Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and in other kind of Greek classic literature. So Philo of Alexandria was a Jewish philosopher who tried to reconcile... Greek Stoicism and Plato's uh, philosophy with the Mosaic law and the Hebrew Bible. Mm. He was a contemporary of Jesus, but lived in Egypt and their paths never crossed as far as we know. Um, But Philo uses this word a couple different times that I could find. And in one of them, he says, he uses the word in context of quoting Moses from the book of Exodus. And he's saying, if you hear the words of God, the commands of God, and don't do something about it, it's futility. So that's, that kind of adds to our understanding of how is this word futility uh, used in our minds. And then if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it starts with this word, right? Vanity, vanity, says the preacher, all is, all is vanity. It's a key word, vanity or futility being the same Greek word in the Septuagint. That word is a, is a key word that runs throughout Ecclesiastes. And as a, I think it's a fascinating thought experiment. If you were to replace that word "vanity," or if the if if you're reading the NIV, it's meaningless. Uh, if you were to replace it with X, right? So you don't know what word is there, and so and then you read the Book of Ecclesiastes and you start to make notes about what could fit in the in the place of X. What word? Vanity, vanity says the word. X. X says the preacher. Everything is X. You know, I tried to accumulate money to fill the void in my heart and be happy, but it was X. And so I got lots of servants, and I built palaces and gardens, and I had a zoo, and it was all X. So I tried sex and had, you know, women in my palace, and it was X, etc. By the end of the book, you don't get the sense when I ran the thought experiment that it's entirely meaningless or worthless but, uh, you know, the, the literal word, uh, word in Hebrew of Hevel, which this translates, is smoke or vapor. Mm. So, you know, you light your cigarette, you, you puff smoke out, and there is something to it. And you're tasting something, and I'm smelling something. And it does exist, and it has a point and a purpose and everything. But in five minutes, where's the smoke?
1: It's gone.
0: It's gone. And you can't grab it. You can't get your hands around it. Mm. You can't put it in your pocket and enjoy it later. It's something very temporal and without an end. And that endlessness, and I don't mean eternality, I mean something without a point at the end of it, something that it culminates in, I think that might be what what Paul is getting at here. Uh-huh. So imagine your if your mind orders your life and you think your way through the world, right? which is one way of living. Some feel their way through the world. Um, But if your mind orders your life, which they did, it was philosophy that drove their culture. And your thinking has no culmination to it. It doesn't end in anything. Then what is the point? Mm -hmm. And so I start to, you know, I I hesitate to just give a a simple definition of what that that phrase, futility of the minds means. But you start to fill out, to flesh out this picture of, um, endless debates and flowery language and lots of blogs and books and podcasts and movies about concepts that end in nothing. Uh-huh. And it's gone. Uh-huh. And it made no footprint in this world. And your soul, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. So I think that that's something that Paul's, that was a really long.
1: That makes sense. Diatribe that on a sense. single word. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. That's what I'm after, man. Uh, why do you think I had you on here?
0: <laughs> Don't ask about any other words. You just happen to ask about the one that I've researched.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> now I say testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the peoples do in the futility of their minds. So if that is sort of like an endlessness, now you said you weren't necessarily talking to eternality, mm-hmm. but if hell is among you know, uh, other possible things, if it is separation from God eternally, Mm -hmm. could this be referencing that? Like, like they served a purpose while they were here. They interacted with people. They had some kids. They maybe increased their knowledge. They progressed in certain ways in society like they were still used while they were here yeah but then yeah. when they were when they died they basically disappeared forever yeah is that how you think about hell and is that uh, possibly what this could be getting at here
0: you're not paying me enough for this conversation <laughs> well yeah i'm not paying <laughs> you no, all that's rough. really astute <laughs> um it's a really astute question and comment kent i think what what you're getting at Is that everything that we've just talked about in futility of their minds? That phrase is teleological, right? So that that word comes from telos, which is the is this Greek word for the end or the goal or the aim of a thing. Okay, right. So um, if you're shooting a bow, the telos is the target, in a sense. It's a simplification, but it works. So to be teleological means to function with an end and a purpose. Mind, frankly, teleological living is what we crave. We want to live a life full of purpose and meaning, so that even if we just stop existing at the end of it, our last thought can be, At least it mattered to my children, at least it mattered to my community, at least I made a difference, right? Like everyone wants that at the very least, right? Um, God gives us the best teleological framework for living that there possibly could be, and that everything we do, you know, the Lord says your labor is not in vain. Everything we do here in Christ echoes into eternity, which is incredible. So you're asking about eternity and about hell. Verse 18 says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So it doesn't say alienated from God. And I think that's important. Of course, in some sense, relationally, they are alienated from God, right? If you reject God, then you're not in sort of a, relation, a covenant relationship, a loving friendship with God like we would want to be. But they're alienated from the zoe of God, the, the life itself of God. So think about Jesus on the cross. It's my position. Um, he says I'm a thing that will go on YouTube and live forever. <laughs> it's my position that Jesus did not spend three days in hell because he said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yep. It's my position that, especially in Matthew, you see it clearly. It says darkness descended on the land from this hour to this hour. It was three hours of utter darkness. Now, if you look at the rest of Matthew's gospel, the darkness, when when Jesus uses this phrase, utter darkness, it talks about in parables and in true teaching without the veil of a story, the reality of someone who's rejected God being cast away from him forever. And there he says constantly, there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth in the utter darkness. Jesus enters into three hours of utter darkness. And I think that that was three hours of in, eterni- in eternity of anguish, squeezed into a three-hour package in his soul uh three hour or three day three hours on the cross while alive i believe jesus experienced hell alive in his mortal body in his soul dang man yeah and when he died was received to the bosom of abraham and the father i think that's what happened um, reformed bros, please don't come at me.
1: <laughs> you think that Jesus e- experienced an eternity of darkness
0: mm-hmm.
1: during the three hours on the cross?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And he shouts out, It's finished. Not, It's about to begin. It'll be finished three days later. Hmm. I do. And to me, that. I don't usually cry on
1: that. the podcast, bro. I don't know why. That is <laughs> intense. Yeah. That's intense. It is intense.
0: Yeah. Huh. And I guess my point in bringing that up is Jesus in that moment was not alienated from God's presence. He was alienated from God's life. Like in John 15, 1 through 11, he says, Abide in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. And any branch that doesn't abide in me is going to get cut off by the Father, by the vine dresser, and thrown into the fire and burned. So He's making this metaphor that, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have a vine or a tree somewhere in your yard with dead limbs still attached to the tree. Mm -hmm. They're not drawing their life from the vine. So they're dead. And in some sense, Jesus in our place was in the presence of the father and stopped drawing his life from the father so that he would be a sinner in the hands of an angry God on our behalf. No, he wouldn't be a sinner. He would be sin. Like First Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He embodied evil right there in God's presence so that we could embody God's righteousness by his grace. So I think that phrase alienated from the life of God is pretty important. Uh And I think when it's talking about the futility of the minds of the people who don't live like God is truth, who don't live like God is the one around whom to orient their lives, like God's glory is the telos, the purpose, the point, the target of all of existence. If that's not our life, we will be alienated from the life of God. And we've already seen a picture of what that looks like. And we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion. Mm. Like our very concept of insufferable pain comes from Christ
1: because he experienced that for us. Mm. So. so if yeah. that's true, it's like, there was like a valve and or something where there was like a direction that flipped like God or Jesus Christ experienced separating himself from the life of God for those three hours or whatever time period it was so that it could be funneled to us Mm -hmm. in a way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, um, Tom said on Sunday, which I do, I recommend that, we have two services, 9 and 1045. And after the first service, Marianna was home with the kids because we had two sick kids. And I texted her, and I'm like, you're going to watch the second service? And she was going to but I was like, yeah, you're not going to want to miss this one. So uh, I do suggest people could just Google or go on YouTube and just Google Tom Cox, Emmanuel Nashville, and they'd yeah. find the sermon. COX, but, right? Yep, Fox. COX. And um, But one of the things he said is that we have ears to I don't know why I'm crying on this podcast, dude. This is, I don't know, something's wrong. But we have ears to to hear the gospel. Like, yeah. that's the purpose of our ears. Yes. Like, that's the reason we have ears. Yes. I think the, the I think, you know, maybe part of it that, that makes it so, like, why I'm feeling the intensity of it right now is, you know, because it's, it's, it's not how I was thinking, you know, it's not how I tend to think. I don't go through the day waking up thinking, you know, that I have ears so that I can hear the gospel. Mm. But but also part of it is, so I feel like a, a sort of a, like a, like a strong, like a draw back to like, this is good news. You know, like this is like the highest and best yes. use. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like if what we're saying about God is true or real and he is that central to reality, to creation, to us. And this is what how our lives can orient to that. Uh, and this is how l- love and God's purpose can be spread in the world. That makes sense to me. Like, yes, that would be the reason we have ears. It is that yeah. central. It is that critical. It is that important. Mm-hmm. But also it's like, man, when you think of, you know, there's a lot of ears out there that, you know, well, they're not hearing the gospel, you know, like, the, and that's the reason they have them, but they're not hearing it. Is, um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, sad is a cheap word. It's like, um, I don't know. What is it like? It's like, a. it's like a shame. Like, it's like, uh, you know? Yeah. So the, all right. So they're the futility yeah. of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Sorry, I'm just like letting what
0: you said soak in. That's really, yeah. Yeah. Psalm 115 says, the nations, the Gentiles, uh, make idols of wood and silver and stone and having ears they do not hear and eyes they do not see and mouths they do not speak and those who make them become like them. And there's a reality that what you worship is what you are moving toward and becoming like. Right? The thing that you bow down to, mm-hmm. um, you're just going to start to image. And so here, you've got Paul saying, you're going to bow to Artemis? You're, there's futility in your mind. The end is nothing but separation from the life of God who is life. Like he is the living God. He is existence in a sense. I mean, his name is I am that I am. He is the existing one. That's the end of that. Uh, bowing to idols, you become like idols. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, when we all having beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face are being transformed from one degree of glory into another, into, in, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So if we worship idols, we become like them. Our ears that were made to hear the good news and glorify God stop working, and our eyes stop seeing, and our mouths stop speaking his praise. That's why he says here that it's not about their ignorance. It's about the hardness of their hearts that led to their ignorance, that led to their futility, right? The, the flip side image of that, though, it's the Westminster Confession says it in question one, larger catechism or shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? Just to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're made for. That's our telos, our end. And so Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3 and, and 3.18, that our end is to gaze on the glory of God in the gospel, and by gazing at his glory, become more like him from one degree of glory to another. Mm-hmm. It's how we become Christ-like, as we take long looks at, at Jesus in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Tony Shepard calls that the um, boon sauce. I don't know why. You'll have to ask boon him. Boon
1: or boon? Boon. Boon sauce. Yeah,
0: you'll just have to ask him next time I will on ha- the I will ask. <laughs> I've not heard that term before. Say, <laughs> so, do you have the boon sauce?
1: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> huh. yeah. I'll yeah. ask him.
0: But yeah, I think that idea is fundamental to Paul's theology. It's fundamental to John's theology. When we see him, we will become like him, for we will see him as he is in 1 John 3. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, Paul is the guy who on the road to Damascus to persecute the church saw Jesus. And what was his conversion moment? When did he stop become a Christian persecuting Jew and start becoming a Jewish Christian who loves Jesus, there was no argument. There was no persuasive teaching, right? All he did was see Jesus. That was all it took. There's something about, and it was in his, Jesus not just showing up like a gardener, like he did to Mary after his resurrection, but Jesus in such dazzling glory that it blinded Saul and everyone with him. Seeing Jesus in his glory makes us more like Jesus. That's just the way this works. But if we're blind because we refuse to look, we're going to get more like the deaf, mute, blind idols that we end up
1: serving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things I feel right now is that uh, how easy it is for me to not gaze at Christ Mm -hmm. like I could. I mean, you could say like I should. Fine, maybe that's an okay word, but that's sort of like a shaming little thing. But it's sure. just like I could, you know, mm-hmm. I could. Um, and it's like it's it's shocking to me how quickly I can drift in my attention yeah. and desires away from the thing that is most central to life. Yes, but I think what I was feeling, you know, when I was thinking about these people with ears that are made to hear the gospel, but they can't hear it or they don't hear, it, is it's maybe consequence, like. There's just a there's such a consequence to that. I mean, if what we're saying is true, there's nothing more consequential. And the other thing that I'm feeling too is like this is the thing that I think is a really well it um it's it's a damn shame when people add a bunch of bullshit to it. Yes. That's right. Because you are, you're clouding it. Yes. Like you're, you're hiding it. Yeah. You're, you're adding to it. Like you're putting barriers to the very thing that's most consequential in life. That yes. is. And so when you think about it that way, it's actually not surprising now, is it? That some of the words that Jesus had to say for the Pharisees, because they did some of that, didn't they? They added, they clouded it.
0: Yeah. I've,
1: yeah.
0: Very much so. It didn't stop with the Pharisees though. Right. It, Um, Galatians is a whole book written from Paul to a church who had received people that were adding to the gospel, clouding it, making it harder to get at. And I think it's Galatians three that begins in English. I'll never forget. This was 10 years ago at a little church in Washington. We had a guest preacher and he had this very uh, remarkable voice, very preacherly voice and was reading this and said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that his pronunciation of, you know, Galatians has become a meme in my household for <laughs> many years since. Um, but there's something where we read that and think, ha, 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 oh, foolish Galatians. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's screaming at him. He's grabbing him by the shirt collar and shaking them. Like, you idiots. How could you let this happen? How could you let anything, come between you and the free offer of salvation in Christ. Like, you, seriously, you, you've been freed from 613 laws in the Torah, and you want to add some back? Mm-hmm. What are you smoking? Mm-hmm. There is a ridiculousness and absurdity to our, not just legalism, which says work your way to heaven, but our tribalism that says, and you've got to look like us and dress like us and interpret every little nuance of the bible just like us and read the same dead guys as us and listen to the same music as us you better smoke a pipe you better not smoke a pipe whatever your regulations are are they keeping you from jesus it's
1: it should make us mad that's a that's a strong point about the legalism but then also the tribalism cuz what you're explaining actually the tribalism is legalism is just cloaked as tribalism yes, and dang that's right. yeah that's a more sneaky one mm-hmm. that that I wasn't thinking about, but that's actually I think that's a really strong point. I could see it depending on someone's context like I can envision a context where the straight up legalism, do this, do that, you know, laws that they're adding back into it is maybe more prevalent. But uh, I kind of feel like in our context, maybe the tribalism might be the the more ready temptation Yes, that's a that's a strong point.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a subtle dagger. You know, there's a story in J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which is well worth reading um, for anybody. Right off in chapter one, he says, Charles Simeon, who's this great old preacher from the 1700s. Calvinist preacher, so big on sovereignty and election and you know all these kind of Calvinist doctrines. He meets John Wesley, who's a great preacher of the First Awakening, an Arminian, who so anti-Calvinist in some sense. They are the two opposing camps of the Protestant Church, if I can be simplistic. Simeon meets Wesley. And Simeon says, Now before we use the daggers in our hands, right, let's let me just ask a few questions. Like who saved you? And Wesley's like, well, God saved me. Right. And, and Simeon says, well, okay, so assuming God saved you, how do you now continue in your salvation? And Wesley says, is God from start to finish? And after a few more questions like that, Simeon says, I think we should sheathe our daggers because this is my whole Calvinism. It's just resting on the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the power of God, and saying, I'm a worm. I've got nothing to offer you, God. That is the epitome of not just Calvinism, but of Christianity. It's actually the heart of Arminianism too. Yeah. And if we can understand that, these two big kind of almost pretend camps, they're caricatures now of Calvin and Arminius, right? If we can understand that and put away our swords, we might get some real
1: good done in this yes. world with Jesus. Yeah. yeah, I love that dude. I totally agree. Um, okay, so they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Uh, and that ignorance is there because of the hardness of their heart. They've become calloused. Uh, they've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy. This is an interesting phrase. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity callous giving themselves up to sensuality which is interesting i want to hear a little bit about that because that's a you know you could give yourself up to a lot of things but they're giving themselves up to sensuality but greedy to practice every kind of impurity it's almost like there's a There's like a, there's a, like loud a, in the microphone. Sorry. what's that? Oh, right, go for it. Go
0: ahead. Sorry, I interrupted a
1: you. Oh, you said you weren't going to bring a pipe. because you didn't say I wasn't going uh, <laughs> to. I just said, you know. You said the pipe wasn't going to work on the podcast, which I didn't, <coughs> I didn't push back on or ask you about because I didn't understand why the pipe wouldn't work on the podcast. What I said
0: was cigars but have a longer burn life. That's sure.
1: Yeah, but also you, know, you know how to smoke that thing well. Um, yeah, 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 there's one right here.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you.
1: No, no, you're fine. But it's just interesting that being like greedy to practice every kind of impurity, it's almost like there's a, um, there's like a, somehow there's a drive to, it's not like something you just sort of drip into or drift off to or happen into, but there's like a push towards the uh, practicing every kind of impurity. I guess that would be probably what the nature of sin results in, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think about it generationally. Um, you know, someone's parents—you're raised in a house that's like, you know, don't don't drink alcohol, it's the devil. Don't listen to music with drums. I don't know, whatever the thing is, like don't wear pants if you're a woman, like whatever your thing is that you're not allowed to do. The kind of stereotypical response of the next generation is to go out and do that to an extreme degree. Yes, says the guy smoking a pipe. Um, <laughs> and that's just human nature human nature is you can't tell me what to do I'm I'm a free man right I'm gonna go do what I want to do and I have the self-control to keep that in bounds or whatever and it can very easily end up becoming a greed of like tell me what else was off limits that I can have yeah I just feel that very personally and I see that in my generation growing up right now and and this moment that we're in in america doesn't i mean it shocks me but it doesn't surprise me because i'm like yeah i kind of get it like there but for the grace of god and i'm wrestling with my own versions of that but uh, that's that's kind of what human nature does and there was a a pastor in the fourth century named john chrysostom john the golden mouthed they called him that's what chrysostom means in greek it's greek yeah it's greek uh, he was a pastor in Antioch, <clears throat> in modern-day Turkey, and yeah, he was a phenomenal preacher. We've got a ton of his sermons still. They're really, really interesting. If you ever look them up, they're usually online for free. Um, not recordings, because, you know, uh, yeah, it was prior course, to... Yeah. It was a joke. But
1: there's like... a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Transcripts. Yeah. I'm tracking. transcripts. I'm tracking.
0: So anyway, um, Chris Austin wrote on this passage, uh, wrote a sermon, and preached it on on verse 17 specifically. And he talked about the culture. Now, I don't know if he was talking about first century Ephesian culture or fourth century culture for his audience. That's not a huge span of time. So I'm going to read a little bit of license into that of like, maybe it's not that different, right? Maybe we don't change as much as we think we do from one kind of century to the next. But what he said was interesting to me. He said, basically, look, you're, you're greedy for gods that... The the tales of the gods coming down and fornicating and, you know, cheating on their spouses with humans, you look at that and go, ah, truth. The gods are like us. We can worship these gods. And then we tell you of a God who's raised from the dead and is nothing but purity, cleanliness and goodness. And you said, that's a fable. There's a greed in that for everything that's not right. And then he says, you you look around with your eyes at this world and you look up at the sun and you go, oh, look, this, this thing is glorious and bright. And because of the sun, plants and seeds can thrive and are nourished. So we should worship this thing that's so powerful and good. And he says, well, the sun is dependent on other things. It's not an ultimate good. It's a secondary good. And, of course, he doesn't have the sort of modern science that we have, so he doesn't know what the sun actually is. But even he's like, look, the sun can be obscured by clouds. A cloud, though not as powerful as the sun, can still master it for a time. So why are you worshiping that thing? And he says, the sun nourishes plants and seeds. Fine, so does dung. Why don't you worship dung, (laughs) right? So he starts poking holes at their logic of all the things that they want to worship in these pagan cultures. And he says, you worship fire okay? Fire knows neither friend nor foe. You contain fire, and if you stop putting boundaries around the fire, it will consume everything, regardless of the sacrifices you offer at its foot. So that's not worthy of your worship either. There's this greed to take everything untrue, everything created, and make it the creator, everything good, and make it ultimate good, and I mean, the rest of the the prophets in the Old Testament just call it idolatry. And we do that today, not with the sun. Um, I'm sure some do. Not with fire, but we do that with um, sexual identity. Identity in general, right? I've been to Disney World. I've heard the Disney gospel. The magic is in you. All you have to do to really achieve your, your own magic and, you know, the charmed life is express yourself authentically and truly. And then you'll be happy finally you're what make this world special that is those are some of our modern idols good things that we've created into ultimate things and bow down to and they don't have a good telos their vanity
1: wow wow yeah you're that is interesting that that See I never thought of it exactly like that how that we we can get on board with these other gods that are like us but the pure true righteous god we don't we push back on yeah. so there's that there's that greed to practice every kind of impurity also in us to some degree
0: I mean there's something about our modern moment That's also very ancient. That says, let me rephrase that. The idols that we worship demand no sacrifices that we aren't already willing to give, desiring to give. Um, There's something about me that I feel is repressed and I really want to express it. Um, But, you know, society tells me that I shouldn't be that but if I can worship a God that demands that I sacrifice the opinion of society and just be who I truly am, that's great. That's not really a sacrifice. Christianity is the only religion I'm aware of that actually demands that you die. That you take all of your desires, all of your fleshly I wants, and put them on the altar and say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Nothing else is so true. <laughs> I mean, what is a, I don't know a better apologetic for the truth of Christianity than to say, what else could account for a bunch of people denying themselves and following Christ other than they've had a real encounter with the real God? that's the opposite of vanity it's the opposite of darkness it's it's light coming in your understanding not darkness it's being connected to the life of god instead of alienated
1: yes well i feel that greed to practice every kind of impurity i feel that greed in me like objectively okay if we think about this just for a second if we think about what we're saying about god is true and that the way our lives work best is actually best for us best for others best for all involved for the way we're remembered potentially for a generation or two um, is if you orient your life towards God, but it's actually not about you, but it's about God that would seem like that just would be the way you'd want to go about things. But see, even as you're saying that I'm thinking in myself, like I push back on that a little bit, you know, like even now I feel like, Oh, come on, you can't take it all away from me. Right? Right. Like, like you got to, I got to like live my own life here to some degree. Like there's something I feel that thing inside of me that pulls towards wanting to to live my life for myself the way I want to live it a little bit, even though I know it's like not the best. I know objectively that's not going to serve its highest purpose that way. But I feel that draw. Yeah. And that draw is basically that it's basically sin. Right. That's what that draw is. I have a dear
0: friend who's a fairly well known country musician, so I won't name him and incriminate him. But he said, like everyone who knows me is immediately like, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, he said to me the other day, because I offered him a beer, and he said, you know, I couldn't drink until I met Jesus. And that stuck with me, because Christianity is laying everything you are and everything you love. It's not laying it on the altar. It's nailing it to a cross. And then the risen Christ, who leads a host of captives in his wake and gives gifts to men, gives back to you more than you can imagine. And, you know, my my dear friend's part of his story is he received from Christ the gift of being able to enjoy alcohol to the glory of God rather than to the glory of his own flesh, mm. which would be v- vainglory, right? Yes. Futility. Yes. And... That is, to be a Christian isn't to stop living and become a, an ascetic sort of monk who lives in a hermit cave. There have been Christians who do that. Not many of us today, right? To be a Christian is to say, not what I will, but what you will. Trusting that, you know, like James says, every good and perfect gift comes from, comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. And we sing in the doxology every week at our church, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow, mm. right? Um, Psalm 84, I'll probably misquote it. it. says something like, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For, and here's the rationale, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. So he's all light, all all vitality, all goodness, all warmth. And he's all protection. He goes before you. So for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He gives grace. He gives gifts. And he gives glory. And he withholds no good thing from them that walk uprightly. Like, do we believe that? (laughs) That the risen Jesus will hold back from you not one good thing if you believe him and follow
1: him. I mean, I'm just, I I barely believe it. Yeah, me too. And this is what, this is, so like this way of looking at God is like the purest and truest and it gives your life the highest purpose it could possibly have if what we're saying about God is true. And yet still, there's something about it that's harder to get to and it's a lot easier to think in terms of, you have your life. Your life is on its way. You direct your life. God can help you with your life. It'll go a little better. Uh, the downs won't be as down. The winds will be a little higher. The You have a little bit more energy or whatever it is. God can help you along with your life. That is the easier way to think about this for some reason. And... I guess sin would have to be part of that reason. I can't think of another reason. Like it's an easier gospel. Would you would you oh, not yeah. agree? There's something about that that's an easier gospel, but for some reason it's the easier gospel, and it's not as, it's not as great in its impact or its purpose somehow. But it's easier. That's a strange, it's a strange thing. Which I guess to. to Like if you wrote that out in an equation, you'd have to have sin in there. That'd be the only explanation for that, right? Yeah, sin and its um,
0: manifestation as idolatry. So think back to Acts 19 again, the riot at Ephesus from the silversmiths. Their life was ordered around an economy that relied on idolatry. So when when the idol is threatened, they're not concerned about their faith. The silversmiths don't care who they were. They worship a lot of gods. They'll take whatever comes. They're concerned about their money because Artemis wasn't their god. Their money was their god. Mm. And so Paul threatened their wealth. There are a few more dangerous things to threaten <laughs> in this world. Now today, threatening somebody's identity is right up there with wealth. Um, laying the claims of Jesus on sexuality and gender, laying that to heart, to not abstractly on a podcast, but to real people. Like looking in the eye, somebody who's struggled all their life and giving them the truth of the Bible on this matter feels like threatening their life's economy. And the response is a soul riot. That's what we do when our idols are threatened, right? If, if we're steering the car and we think we're in control, which is a sort of idolatry. And someone tries to take our hand off the wheel, we're going to grip the wheel real tightly because we do not want to lose control. But losing control is precisely the point with Christ. It's submission. It's saying, I give up. I can't order my reality anymore. I'm not good like you are. You are ultimate good. You withhold no good from those who walk uprightly with you. So, and you didn't withhold your son. And you didn't not go through the worst suffering ever. So if God can himself endure three hours of eternal agony on our behalf for our good, what can't we trust him with? Mm -hmm. What idols can't we smash? What things can't we let go of? That's Paul's logic in Romans 8 when he says, what does he say? if God who didn't withhold his own son from us, if God did not withhold his own son from us, how would he then withhold any good? That's not an actual quotation, but that's the thrust of what Paul's getting at. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. And that's at the very heart of the gospel, and it's the very heart of change, like repentance, growth in grace, growth in Christ, is trusting the goodness of God. I have a friend who's helping me see that right now who's wrestled with that more deeply than I can imagine wrestling because of abuse in their past and walking through the journey of seeing, coming to the conclusion God must be like an abuser to allow these things to happen and getting through that all the way because of the cross to see if God is God, then he must be the fullest expression of everything that he is. That's imaginable. There must be no one more loving than God, no one more merciful than God, no one more just than God, and therefore no one more generous and kind and good than God. And if that becomes your ordering principle of reality, then you can receive anything from his hand. Like Job says, though you slay me, yet I will still praise you. Man, you imagine what it would be like to live life with that conviction fully
1: settled into our hearts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's amazing yeah so then that would make sense why the the view that we could take the the sexuality thing as an example that Say the traditional Christian view of sexuality would be not just disagreed with, but it would be perceived as threatening and dangerous. Yeah, because it's possible that in some cases it's it's speaking to an idol, mm-hmm. and for that to change, it's perceived as a, or received as a threat, as danger, as an attack. Yes. Yeah.
0: I think the best example of the heart of Christ to to people who struggle letting go of idols isn't, now I'm not to say there's some better parts of Scripture than others, but if you just go to the prophets who who say, you know, woe to you because you go and, and lust after every Egyptian under every green oak or whatever, you know, read Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and it's very kind of sexual in in its talk of like betraying the God of the covenant. That is true, and that's there. But if you want to see the real heart of Christ most fully explained, because the fullest revelation of God is in Christ, right? That's where we get the clearest picture of who God is. If you want to see that, um, I think, go to the Gospels, and you see the rich young ruler who comes and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There was no one good but God alone. You know the commandments, right? And he lists out some of the 10 commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, not only do I know them, I've kept them since I was a small kid. Like I I can honestly say in my integrity before Jesus, I'm doing all right. And Jesus says, well, right on, man. I'm proud of you. Good job. So I, really there's just one thing left. So Go ahead and go sell all of your great God. many possessions and, and give it to the poor because it's no use of you. And then and then follow me. And it says, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. We have no story of him coming back. He might have. I like to think he did because one of the Gospels, don't remember which one, one of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's how Jesus feels about people who struggle to let go of idols that have a grip on their heart. He doesn't look and shout at them and say, you know, you idolater, how dare you? He looks at them and he loves them. Yeah. And then he lays his finger on the wound and says, I can heal this. I know it's hurting you. I can help you. Are you willing? And he's really patient. If our churches could do a little more of looking and loving and a little less woe to youing without compromising the truth of the Bible, I think we'd be doing a better job of presenting the real good news of Jesus.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I feel that draw to wealth in my life. I think, you know, if I were just to pick, like... I would be very wealthy. And also that would just happen to be God's purpose for me. Like, <laughs> and, and everything else could still be the same. Yeah. Totally. You know? Yep. The, um, do we know much about them giving themselves up to sensuality? What, how did that manifest itself then? Do we know much about that?
0: I don't know much about that in terms of, um, in terms of Ephesus, primarily. We know that paganism in the first century in the Roman Empire was just sensual in general. Which makes a lot of sense if your gods make a lot of um, reasonable demands of you that don't cost you a lot, but then they give you lots of the things that you already want. Then it its natural expression is sensuality. I mean, most religions end in some kind of sensuality. That's a really big statement to make publicly on a recording. That's probably not true. I don't know that. I haven't researched that. However, what I mean is this there are lots of religions that the whole point is like, guess how many virgins you're gonna get in the new life? Right? Or it's okay, you can be polygamous now. No worries. Um that's a pretty common thing. Now, Gnosticism, or proto-Gnosticism, like what preceded the sort of full formation of the religion, seemed to have taken hold in Ephesus by this time. And Gnosticism taught the separation and almost antagonism between flesh and spirit. Uh, Like, material things are bad, spiritual things are good. Therefore, worldly knowledge is only kind of partial and not that useful, but there's this higher plane of secret knowledge And if that sounds like the Freemasons, that's not on accident. If there's this higher plane of secret knowledge that everyone has to attain to. And again, the natural result of that isn't that you become a total ascetic and do away with all material things. One might think that is the case, but the actual result tends to be sensualism. You say, well, if this, if the flesh doesn't matter, if material Uh stuff doesn't matter, then I can do whatever I want without consequence because I have higher knowledge because I'm a spiritual being. Well, the resurrection of Jesus gives no room for duality or for Gnosticism. He is flesh and blood, he eats fish, he's got scars on his hands and feet, and he passes through walls and ascends to heaven. Like, God created both flesh and spirit. God is spirit, but God, like, God is over all of these things and in Christ marries the divine nature and the human nature into one, which is just mind-boggling to think of. But it gives no room for us to say, the, the flesh doesn't matter, materialism, you know, this world, this stuff that you can touch, it, it doesn't matter. It matters a lot to Jesus. And 1 Corinthians says, I think three different times, Paul says in that, in that letter, do you not know your body, that body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That leaves no room for sensuality. And Paul teases that out by saying, okay, thought experiment. You are are a member of the body of Christ. Let's say you're a thumb, right? You're a thumb on Jesus' body. And you go into a prostitute. You have just united the body of Christ with a prostitute. Far be it from us to do that. So the body matters, flesh matters, material matters atoms and molecules matter to God, he has sanctified it all. <laughs> he has consecrated it all by the resurrection of Christ. And so the, the opposite end, without the resurrection, sensuality is, is one normal way that we go. The other end of that same, the flip side of the same coin is a deep asceticism where we try to achieve sort of nirvana and an out of body kind of an emptiness and a nothingness Both of them say the body doesn't matter. It's one coin with two faces. The resurrection is the only thing that actually dignifies the real humanness of humans and says, you are a body and you're a spirit. And both of those things will never be disentangled in the eyes of God. And you're going to be united to your body, body and spirit for eternity before God. And I, it's just a it's an incredible. There's no other worldview. There's no other religion that explains reality and dignifies reality, like Christianity. So anyway, I got away from the actual question and I started talking about the resurrection. but
1: Well, I think that's, I guess it could depend on someone's perspective to a degree. But I also feel like objectively, Like what we're saying, what what traditional Christians believe about God is like the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that when you follow the Christian virtues, because we were talking about this last week with Chad and Mika Karger, humility, patience, love, selflessness, um, you know, so on. It, it just so happens, like when you do that, your your life does actually work best. Yeah. And then when we think about, like, how we got here, why we're here, where we're we going, I mean, it just seems to me like Christianity is, like, the best-case scenario. And I wonder if, like, some people look in on it and think, they got to be making some of that up because, like, <laughs> yeah.
0: that's
1: yeah. that's either they're thinking they got to be making some of that up because that's too good to be true or they're or they're misreading the situation and thinking that it's, like, all or they're or they're buying into some of this other, you know, bullshit that some people are adding to it, and thinking, well, you know, I don't want to. They 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 see the legalism stuff that gets added to it and think, well, that's no good way to live your life either. Which mm-hmm. a lot of that we would totally agree with. Yeah. Um, I I wonder if most people.
0: Another big statement. I have to be careful with hyperbole. <laughs> a problem for me. Sometimes I wonder if we have followed our idols so far that we have become totally blind to those ways of thought. I don't know that people are thinking that deeply. The people in my experience as a pastor and just as a Christian in general that ask, that ponder the sort of things like, man, this person is living like Jesus is real. How is this possible? Like the people who go down that rabbit trail seem to be the people who've hit absolute rock bottom of the pit of despair. Just made myself think of the Princess Bride. You seen that? The pit of despair.
1: I don't think you know I talk about.
0: No. All right, it's <laughs> fine, viewers. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's worth watching. Um, the people who have hit absolute rock bottom, nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, in the lowest of low start um YouTubing and Googling their big questions and find people wrestling with these things in places like this mm-hmm. um and those people are the ones that often will come to me like it's hard for me to believe that God's even real let alone kind except because of my despair i'm looking around and i'm seeing how these people are living and i have no explanation for it but the resurrection yeah that's all i've got yeah. that's that's how it's designed to be yep yeah.
1: all right we're not going to spend this much time on the next chunk but <laughs> because we reference it could you just go ahead and read then verses 25 to the end there 32
0: yeah. i'm in the wrong chapter hold on Ephesians 4 25. There it is. Therefore, which immediately signifies to us that, or signals to us that we're building a logical argument based on what preceded. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you.
1: I thought to the um, it's interesting where he goes in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, And this is interesting what comes next. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that currently truth is also under attack. Like there's no truth. Anything is true. Your truth is my truth is your truth is your. It's like that's like circular reasoning. It's like I don't even. unless I don't
0: like your truth, in which case your truth isn't truth.
1: That is that is true. Right. Yeah, It starts to You're put right. a You're chink right. in the armor. You're right. But you know, when you put those uh, sometimes you put a formula in Google Drive in like Google Sheets or whatever, <laughs> and you mess the formula up and it like it gives <laughs> yeah. that like error button. It's like yeah. no circular, you know, right. it says something about like circular <laughs> formula or whatever. It's like it's like that doesn't even work. That's great. Um, that's how it feels like with some of this prevalent cultural understanding around Mm -hmm. truth it's like that's it's like a misunderstanding of truth can't be whatever you want it to be that's not truth yes but that seems to be also prevalent it's interesting that he goes there
0: it is yeah you're entirely right and you know i mean i have more questions about this passage than i have answers and insights um when he says let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for here's the reason we are members one of another does he mean by neighbor christian gentile neighbors so speak the church, speak the truth within your christian communities because we're members one of another in the same way that we're united to christ and then united to each other or is he saying speak the truth with your gen- like your non-believing neighbors like evangelism because we're sort of the brotherhood of humanity I mean, I don't actually see the brotherhood of humanity representing the Bible much, if at all. Maybe maybe like once that I can think of. So I tend toward the former interpretation, but I still, it feels more muddy than clear to me. Interesting. Because I haven't dove into this and exegeted it properly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and we can we move on because there's a couple of things I want to ask you too. But like he even talks about robbing, like being a thief in here.
0: Yeah, that's right. You don't yeah.
1: have to look far to see that right now either.
0: I think it comes down to um, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There is a pivot point in the life of every person he's writing to that is cross-shaped, right? There is a God encounter, a Christ encounter, at which point you apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, as the shorter catechism puts it, You apprehend, you get your mind and your heart around the mercy of God in Christ and nothing is ever the same. It's transformative. And again, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's beholding the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face. It's looking at the cross. It's seeing the gospel. It's seeing what Jesus did for you. makes you into the kind of person that has a new self so you can put off the old self. You can stop doing the things that you used to do that were futile, and start doing things that echo into eternity. Like speaking truth, not giving the devil a foothold or an opportunity, you know, laboring honest work with your hands, that sort of thing. That's what Christianity, encountering Christ and converting to Christianity doesn't create ivory tower academics or, I don't know, blasé sort of vanilla... Christians, it creates people who are hardworking, uh, honest, full of integrity, loving, and truthful. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. could be better for our world, right? Yes. Like, that's a lot better than looking to legislation to solve
1: our problems. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And even that, like, it's easy to not have that be top of mind as you go about your day, like the old man and the new man. Because there's not a lot of other things in this life that are quite like that. That's right. Like we're used to incremental improvements over time. There's not a lot of things there that you have that sort wow. of old man, new man.
0: That, that was very astute what you just said. I think it was Arian in like the third or fourth century. Not Arian, Arius, uh, the heretic. <laughs> Uh, the guy Santa Claus punched, apparently. Um, what? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, who was it? Oh, it was, well, St. Nicholas. It's a, a legend that I just hope is true. St. Nicholas, um, who was an actual like bishop in Turkey somewhere, was at a council of the church and met Arius, this heretic, and slapped or punched him because of his heresy. Um, it, it not, yeah, so I hope that's true, because St. Nicholas is the one that we get Santa Claus from. Yeah, that's funny. So, anyway.
1: Um, I might never think of Santa Claus (laughs) quite the same again. Right. I hope not.
0: Um, Arius, I believe it was, his issue was the deity of Christ, and he saw Christ as a created being. So he coined this little song, there was a time when the Christ was not, or there was a time when the Son was not. In in other words, he's a created thing. He's not eternally begotten of the Father. He's temporally begotten of the Father. Uh, If you went far enough back, Jesus wouldn't exist. Um, he's wrong, and the church refuted him very clearly in, in the early creeds, but he, if our memory serves, he spoke about Christ's humanity and deity as like a ladder, like we're down here on the rungs of the ladder, and then maybe there's angels, and then there's Jesus, and then there's God at the top of the ladder, so it's, it's a matter of increment, it's a matter of scale, like how close are you on this thing, and Biblical Christianity, like theology from the Bible, without any hesitation, basically says, it's not a ladder. He is something other than you are. God is ontologically different than humanity, in the same way that a potter is ontologically different from the pot that he just formed on the wheel. That's how distinct and different we are, but even more so. And so Christ isn't just nearer to God than we are; He is fully this, and fully this in a way that we can never be, and that's that's really important.
1: Yeah, well, that's where some of our earthly examples fall short. Like I, I remember hearing someone say one time that, you know, this um, this person's son had died, and it was tragic, and and um, and the thinking was, you know, that basically that battle had gotten lost Mm. and that God would never have essentially, uh, man, I mean, you get into, (laughs) you get into the weeds here a little bit, but essentially, you know, that God would never have orchestrated that outcome because you would never do that as a dad to your son. Right. And I, I, I heard, I hear what he's saying. I heard what he was saying. But I think it, it's, you know, we just, it's that analogy of, like, what would I do with my sons or my sons and daughters? It Like, there are limits to that because life and death is in God's hands. Yes. I, I believe that. Like, it's one area of hope for me, you know? Um, so I don't know that it, you can quite extrapolate. Yeah, I would never kill any of my kids. You know, I would never design something so that that would happen. That would never be an outcome. I would fight for everything, and if one of them did die, it would, it would be you know because all of my fighting to not let that happen came up a little short. That's right, and that could that could happen, Um, a whole bunch of different ways. But it's different with God, isn't it? Like it's yeah, I mean, different thing. Genesis twenty-two.
0: God comes to Abraham. All right, final test. I want you to offer up your son, burnt sacrifice, Mount Moriah, let's go. Um, there's no, you can read the Bible very thoroughly from there on out and not find anything so morally reprehensible until you get to the cross. Because God doesn't ask Abraham to do something that he's not willing to do himself. And in Hebrews 11, we get a glimpse in behind the curtain with Abraham. He's a thinking theologian. He's not a feeling guy. He's a thinker. And so Hebrews 11 says that he reckoned, he considered, he sat down with a pen and paper and like worked it out. Okay. God made me a promise. First of all, Acts 7 or 9 Stephen in his sermon specifically says the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. So God's call to Abraham wasn't some disembodied voice going, Abraham, follow me. You know, the God of glory appeared visibly to Abraham in such a way that Abraham said, I will reorient my whole world around you. Imagine getting a glimpse of something so glorious that you're like, nothing I have. No status, no wealth, no security, no safety, no comfort, no loved ones are worth keeping at the exclusion of you. That's how God showed up to Abraham. So then they walk together for decades, and God makes a promise to Abraham, which is through your son with Sarah, I will bless the whole world. I will save the world. So that's premise one. Like God says, I will bless the world through your son, who will become a multitude of nations and kings. Premise two is God says, kill your son. Abraham goes, okay, God, if God made the promise, God's glorious and good. The only possible conclusion I can come to is that God will raise him from the dead and bring him back and then fulfill his promise. So I'm willing. And he did. And he probably shed more tears than we can imagine on the the three-day journey up to that hill. But he said to his servants, he took servants with him, two servants, He said at the bottom of the hill, he's got two servants and his son, Isaac. And he turns to the servants and says, you guys wait here. The boy and I are going to go up and then we are going to come back to you. He already believed God was going to restore him to life. Okay. He thought he was going to have to, you know, the pictures are all Abraham with a knife raised up like Mm -hmm. this. It wasn't like that. It was a slitting of the throat. Mm. It was a sacrificial lamb, a sacrificial knife. It was a very personal, slow, intimate. It was awful. The most horrible thing you can imagine. And he goes, I'm going to do that. Because the God of glory told me to. And then God is going to restore him to me because he's good and true and doesn't betray his promises. And it's going to be better that way somehow. He couldn't have foreseen the glorious third option of the ram in the thicket. Mm -hmm. But with God called him to that knowing that God himself was willing to actually go through with the sacrifice. Like in that story, we are not, who are we in that story? If we're placing ourselves, we're Isaac. We're the people who were, should die. Jesus is the ram who comes and is killed in our place. There is no ram for Jesus. Yeah. When the father's son is, is going up to the cross, bearing the wood on his back like Isaac bore the wood up the mountain. There is no ram in the thicket. He's the ram. He has to die. But God already knows he's going to bring him back to life. And that just turns all of our everything on its end. (laughs) Mm -hmm. God can't be an abuser if all those things are true. God can't be a mean God. And if Jesus, like Isaac, Isaac, he didn't argue. He didn't protect. If he's old enough to carry the wood up the mountain. He's old enough to fight off his centenarian father yeah, and good run point. the other way. Good point. Right? He was willing. He trusted his father. Jesus was completely willing to go through with it. So if it was against his will, God's an abuser. If Jesus and the father had a covenantal agreement before eternity where Jesus said, I'm going to do this, I'm willing, let's do this then God is the ultimate good. Mm-hmm. I can't find another conclusion.
1: Mm-hmm. It's hard to wrap your head around the concept of God. Like I I, I think every so often about the time uh, David Filson was on this podcast a couple years ago and he was explaining to me the concept of the simplicity of God, which is that, God is not the composite of parts. He just is. And I, I I used to think of God as like this God the Father and then God the Son. God the Son is Jesus Christ. God the Father is like another person type being. Where there's like a, a center point of em, emission, you know? And it's so strong that there's no part that's not. Less powerful than closer to the source, but it still emits out of some place. But it doesn't seem to be that that's the way it is. Um, it's almost like a. I mean, the truth is, I almost like hesitate to use words to describe right. it because it's just I, yeah. it, it's it's like this divine alive algorithm in some mm-hmm. sorts. I mean.
0: Simplicity is one of my favorite doctrines to think about because I believe it, God is simple. He is not made up of composite parts. Perfect perfect definition, right? The God who is simple, he is one, right? Hero is real, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6, became flesh. Therefore, God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is God, is now made up of molecules. So the non-composite God, one of his three persons is now composite and non-composite. So then he dies, and then he's raised back to life, and then ascends to heaven, and after his ascension, we are his body. So now the composite, non-composite God is made up compositely of all of us composite people, And he is still one. Mm. So now you get to John 17, the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one. Like you and I are one. Like, Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. That's the kind of unity we're called to. Mm. That's just, it blows my mind. It's my favorite doctrine, not because I get it and then can like preach a sermon on it. Because it blows my mind and then makes me sit back and just scratch my head for a couple
1: hours. The doctrine of the simplicity of God? Yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, theology should make us just experience awe. Yes. More than anything else, right? Yes, that's what I
1: experienced. That that is, yes. Now, but would you agree that Jesus is still composite? Well, he's human. Yeah, yeah.
0: But he's still one. Yes. That's as much as I can say. Okay. okay. <laughs> All I can do is the classic Calvinist thing of say, this seems true and this seems true. And so I'm okay. going to hold them both and let there be tension. Yes. Like I can, I still pray and say the Shema, you're a of the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord, your God. With heart. You know, you still echo that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: God is simple. He is not made up of lots of things. So he is not reducible to smaller things. Christ is not reducible. So, you technically are reducible to a certain massive number of molecules, right? Christ is not reducible to a number of Christians. Yes. So he's not composite in that sense. And he's not reducible to a number of molecules because he's also God. So I don't know. That's where my brain fizzles out (laughs) and I just worship.
1: So you, so do you think that Jesus is still human then somewhere? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I believe that he eternally united human nature to divine nature in the incarnation. Okay. And that would be following like the, like Gregory of Nazianzus and kind of the early church fathers who really worked on the doctrine of the Trinity and kind of the hypostatic union and how, how these two natures are combined. And I, Oh, I can't remember what creed it is. One of the early Christian creeds says with, you know, that the, the divine and human nature are combined in Christ with neither like confusion nor compromise. They are, he is both truly human and truly fully God. And
1: it's just,
0: it's just this mystery that you go, I'm just going to have to hold this, yeah, letting it be what it is without explaining it down and reducing it.
1: You mentioned Tony Shepard earlier. Tony Shepard has six kids and I think one of his oldest kids, when they moved back to Nashville last year, walked into the first night at student ministry and walked up to Vince, and this he's probably 12 or 14 years old, and said to Vince, the student ministry, hey, I, I know what the hypostatic union is. I bet you don't, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Vince said it was hilarious. That's amazing. Uh, I don't even know what that is. What is the hypostatic union? Don't ask me. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's Tony Shepard, because apparently mean, he taught his kids. <laughs> I've written
0: papers on it, but it's one of those things where it's like, you don't talk about it every day, so you kind of put it out of your mind. Yeah. It essentially is what I just said, that it's the it's the n- divine nature and the human nature of Christ coming together without mix and compromise in the person of Jesus. Um, so I remember writing a paper in seminary uh, at Knox about the mechanics of the hypostatic union on the cross in the atonement and the importance that if if the natures of God are, if divine and human nature rather are, commingled and then therefore compromised in some way like he's kind of like 80% Mm. and 80% or 80% 20 or 50-50 or something like that then he could not accomplish atonement for for humanity and he could not be a mediator for humans and God God has to die and all humans have to die and only a non-composite hypostatic unionified (laughs) you know, son of God can both pay for the sins of his people and reconcile them to the father.
1: Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Okay. Three more things I wanted to ask about. Yeah. Uh, narrative in scripture. Can we get some top line thoughts or some cliff notes on that? That's There's one. No way what we're going to. What's that? What are the other two? Oh, narrative in scripture, the impassibility of God and the assayity of God. <laughs> Let's touch on all three yet before I get you out of here. Let's <clears throat>
0: hit the mic and then coughed <laughs> and it's like a <clears throat> two strikes <laughs> yeah. one more and i'm out
1: um well let me say narrative of scripture yeah top line thoughts top line thoughts
0: <clears throat> the bible so a good novel doesn't start with hi i'm the narrator i wrote this book and it's all made up right um you're the reader i'm the narrator we all know these are the rules you pretend that this is real, you get emotionally invested, etc. That's not how books start. They just start with, you know, chapter 1 and then they get you into the story. And the goal of a good story is to get you to participate in that story, to see yourself in that story and to be shaped by that story. Now that's whether that's a true story or a not true story, uh, which might be unhelpful categories. <laughs> right? Like good stories in some sense are true. And Tolkien talks a lot about this in like on fairy stories and Tolkien and Lewis were big on kind of myth as not being false, but as sort of representing truth in a different way. The Bible is a really good story from start to finish. There's been a lot of ink spilled on how the Bible is one narrative. There's a cohesive plot line and a story to this whole thing made up of a whole bunch of other narratives and other genres. It's a story that encompasses poetry and wisdom literature and letters and, you know, lamentate, like weeping and lamentations and all these other things, genealogies. Um, But it's a story. And in that story are a whole bunch of really rich but really ancient and foreign narratives. So if God had began the Bible with a prologue, which is like a first word, right, to say, dear reader, I am God. I wrote this through the mouths of lots of humans and through the pens of lots of humans, but I inspired it all so you can trust it, but you're going to have to go along for the ride. Like, that would have been one way, but he didn't do that. It's just in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you're just encountering this book, Genesis, or this book, the Bible, it's a compilation of 66 books, and you're encountering them for the first time, you have to go along for the ride. And you're reading it in order, and you're asking a lot of really big questions. Like, okay, God created everything, cool. What's he like? Is he good? Is he kind? Is he just? Is he merciful? Um, If you're in, you know, a ancient Near Eastern pagan context, where you grew up reading Babylonian myths or Ugaritic myths or Egyptian myths about creation, these stories, you'll read Genesis 1 and go, I'm assuming God is bloodthirsty, lusty, and greedy, and selfish. Those are your assumptions based on your stories because stories form people. That's what they're meant to do. They're not just meant to delight. They're meant to delight to the purpose of forming somebody. So Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that Genesis one, the creation narrative, flows like a lot of ancient creation narratives do, and there's a lot of similar, the parting of the waters and the rising up of land out of the water, and the you know, the sort of day structure. All these things are very similar to lots of other creation stories from other religions. From other religions, yeah. So Egyptian stories, Babylonian, Mesopotamian stories, all these. Um, but there's some really key differences. So in um, Iluma, I- Enuma Elish which is a, I think of, gosh, do I remember? Is it Syrian? Ugaritic? doesn't matter. It's another ancient Near Eastern creation story. Enuma Elish. There's several gods, and they decide that they are um, hungry. So they, they need to create a world full of people who can cultivate cattle and sheep and whatever, and feed them. So to do that, they, one god um, starts arguing with another god and slits that god's throat and spills his blood into the mud and forms man out of the dirt and the blood. So creation in the Enuma Elish is out of greed and jealousy and rivalry and selfishness and all of that. And it shares a whole common vocabulary and thematic structure with Genesis and probably predates its writing. So it's old. And then you get Genesis. In the beginning, God, just the one, created heavens and the earth. Why? He wanted to. How? By his word, not by blood of other gods. There's no rivalry. And then you discover there's no need. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. So therefore, creation in the Bible's narrative is out of the overflow of God's joy and pleasure and goodness, not out of his need and greed. That's what stories are meant to do to people is teach is, is you bring you, it brings you into the story to go, Oh, I'm one of those. I'm one of those creature creatures. I'm a creation. And then therefore I relate to this God, but now I know what this God is like that he's not this way. He's that way. And so over time, the narratives of the Bible fill in the picture of what God is like. So we we talked about Genesis 22 earlier. When we get, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, you get to Genesis 22, you're supposed to be shocked. You're supposed to be appalled that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's the point of the story. And if you are, good, you're letting the story do what stories are supposed to do. (coughs) <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> coming on the tail end of a cold still so stories are formative and participatory and so <clears throat> that's just really foundational to reading the Bible is we need to understand a lot of it is told in narrative and the way that we let narrative work is we read it and we think about it Then we read it again and we think about it but we don't read it and concoct systematic theology from it as we read, the first time. you know We, can't, we should come to conclusions about who God is based on the story over time. <coughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, so stories are formative, and that's really crucial. Jesus knew that. That's why he almost exclusively told stories in his ministry. <clears throat> What's the kingdom of God like? Well, he could have written a textbook. He didn't write any books, which is interesting. He was a storyteller. He just said, well, it's like it's like a mustard seed. He grew into a big tree. It's like a banquet. You know, sorry, I'm losing my voice.
1: Oh, you're fine. <laughs> cough it out, bro. <laughs> we basically make no edits on this podcast, but if you just have to go have a good, there solid is. cough, no like, just cough that out.
0: This might be that makes it way
1: better. I know. <laughs> <laughs> It always makes it better. I had this working theory a few years ago, and I was smoking more cigars. That um, the cigar helped with the allergies, but I don't know that that was really the case.
0: Sell <laughs> you ourselves lots. Yeah. <laughs> there's
1: no doubt about that.
0: <laughs> All right. So, <clears throat> let's see if I can do this. You're back.
1: And we're back. <laughs> okay. there's. Oh, um, oh, no, now we have mosquitoes in here because I opened <laughs> that door. Uh, we're trying to blow some cold air in here.
0: Oh, yeah, it's all right. So Hebrew narrative is a very specific kind of narrative, too. <clears throat> there's a narrative in the New Testament, right, like Luke. Um, Luke is a really good storyteller. The Book of Acts is an incredible story, start to finish, uh, the, 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 the Gospels are <clears throat> remarkable stories. Now, their genres, is um, bios, or they're like <clears throat> biographies. The Gospels? S- the Gospels are. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're in a genre that was already known to that world in that time, which is interesting that the Lord contextualizes his word in ways that we can receive it and go, oh, I know what we're talking about here. But story is universal. There is no culture without stories. Stories are culture forming and they're culture shaping. I mean, You want to know, if we talk about gospel doctrine, gospel culture at Emmanuel and at Christ Church as well. Um, the thing that is below, so gospel doctrine precedes gospel culture, right? What we believe about Jesus shapes the way we live that belief out. And what we believe about Jesus comes first through story. And then we categorize it into systems and go, okay, God, if these stories are true, God must be simple in the doctrine of simplicity terms. Mm-hmm. He, he must you know, be impassable, as we'll come to later if there's time, if my voice holds out. He must be all of these things, right? So that's a systematized theology, but it arises out of story first. That's the, the kind of the primary vehicle of this. So part of my passion is looking at the often neglected portions of the bible the misunderstood the weird the foreign stories in the old testament and letting them wash over us like a good story should and uh letting it work on us letting stories let them mess with us right like get appalled get angry a little bit get frustrated with the god who would allow this to happen those sorts of things it's like good you're alive You have a heartbeat, wonderful. Now keep going, keep going, finish the story. My son, William, he's 10, he's a sensitive boy, he's a good boy, Uh, he's kind-hearted and and generous and lots of wonderful things but he's also sensitive and when we're watching a a movie that hits the climax or the um, height of the plot tension and it's just sad. He's like, I'm done, turn it off no watch it keep your eyes open put toothpicks in your eyelids keep keep your eyes glued to the screen and finish the story because every good story has to do that Mm -hmm. and every good story uses appalling things and desperate things and sad things to work on us and in us and form us and shape us and delight us and the bible does that too
1: to your point on that the um one of the things I was thinking about recently is how <laughs> straightforward <coughs> the, well, particularly in the Old Testament, how how raw some of those stories were. We were reading the story of Samson and Delilah a couple nights ago because we're trying to um, we, we we struck on a little uh, a little system that might work because Kobe was in on that podcast with Chad and Mika last week. So Lincoln is just great at making food. I mean, dude, he's got natural talent, bro. I'm telling you right now. When he makes dinner, we eat. Wow. He's naturally talented. He's 12 years old, and he's like a little mini chef. Anyhow, we're thinking we're going to have Lincoln pick whatever he wants to make every Monday night oh, for dinner, awesome. and he'll he'll pick whatever he wants. Uh, he made uh, burgers and fries, and the fries were like, it was straight potatoes, salt, and coconut oil. And, dude, they were I would actually eat those fries over McDonald's fries, which is saying a lot. Cause like yeah. McDonald's fries,
0: they got it nailed down to a science. They
1: have yeah. it nailed down to yeah. a science. If you have fresh warm McDonald's fries, i still think they're like hard to beat. <laughs> Anyhow, he, uh, Oh, this is what I was, where I was going with that is Monday nights. He's going to pick the menu, make dinner. And then we're going to try to read some scripture and talk about a little bit. Cause that's just where we're at. Like if we can start with once a week, you know, that's going to be a win for us. And, sure. um, so we were reading Samson and Delilah and the story where we start it starts off with <laughs> Samson going down to sleep with a prostitute and like they're all <laughs> yeah, like yeah. snickering and <laughs> like, well, what am I gonna do? Like this is what yeah. the scripture is saying, you know, yeah. so we can talk about it. But it's like so straightforward and almost like on the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what is that part of what you're saying? With like some of these stories are just they're just raw. Yeah, and if you keep going in the Bible story and you get to Hebrews
0: um, eleven, the hall of faith heroes, right? And they praise Samson for his great faith. You should go, hold on. I read Judges. Samson's a ding-dong. That's in the Hebrew originally. Like, he's an absolute <laughs> ding-dong. He has, <laughs> like, how does he deserve to be? That's exactly right. Good, you're thinking. Okay, You're letting the story do its work on you. Okay. And if you read the story of Samson and Delilah, having read Hebrews maybe, and go, well, Samson's a hero of the faith, so you read Samson Delilah, you read the whole story of Judges, and you conclude that everything Samson did was great, and you kind of whitewash it. You're missing it. Okay, we're supposed to read about Judah and Tamar and go, I can't believe one of the patriarchs of our faith did that. Or you know, we're supposed to read about the slaughter of Reuben and his brother of Shechem. Where they circumcised they tricked everyone to getting circumcised and then while they're kind of wobbly at the knees, they go in and just slaughter the town. We're supposed to be appalled. Read you know, Abraham and Sarai and Hagar, Abram, Sarai and Hagar. Like these things should be morally reprehensible to us. Exactly. It's the point. Mm. You've got to let the stories work on you. And there's a lot of ways that Hebrew narrative, which I j- it's just so dear to my heart. Now I'm not a Hebrew linguist, I'm not I'm not a expert in Hebrew but Hebrew narrative is worth kind of some people devoting a lifetime to studying because there are tools and techniques that Hebrew narrative picks up and uses to accomplish that end of the story working on you that are uh, remarkable so I mean the Lord chose to speak through particular languages and particular times on purpose. For instance, Koine Greek, the New Testament's written in Koine. It could have been written in classical Greek, uh, which would have been much more flowery, much more formal, much more precise. But he chose the common language because at just that precise moment in history, the whole sort of known civilized world was using Koine as the language of the marketplace. So by writing the New Testament in Koine Greek, everyone could read it, roughly, you know, everyone literate in the known world could access it. So he's very particular about why and when he chooses a language. And he chose Hebrew, um, one of many ancient Near Eastern languages to speak to us, to breathe through his spirit, his word, for the duration of the world. So Hebrew's got some really fascinating things that make it unique. Uh, when When Hebrew narrative is telling a story, the first thing to notice is it's remarkably sparse. There is no extra detail. And I can't stress that enough. There is not one wasted word, in my opinion, in the opinion of many much smarter Hebrew scholars than me. So, so all of
1: the New Testament is in Hebrew? New Testament's Greek. I'm the sorry, Greek. I meant yeah, to Old say Testament, Old Testament. Old Testament's
0: Hebrew? Hebrew except for a portion of Daniel, which is written in Aramaic. Um, and that's starting in Daniel 4 and doesn't last very long i don't remember how many maybe a chapter or three um don't know why never studied aramaic Mm -hmm. but um they're related so they're they're pretty close Mm -hmm. but hebrew is um have you ever read any uh ernest hemingway no no i have read portions of his novels and the sort of thing of like i felt like people think i'm smart so i should read hemingway you know I'm like, if you want to be manly, like yeah. no one's more manly than Ernest Hemingway. Um, but I couldn't make it through. However, what's been striking about his style of prose is that he is as sparse as Hebrew narrative. So um, I think there was an excerpt, I, I came across this on a blog somewhere, it was striking. <laughs> um, I think it was the book, For Whom the Bell Tolls. He, someone receives news that their son has died or something like that. And the narrative is like, you know, Joe Schmo heard that his son died and he looked up and said, blah, blah, blah. And it gives no insight to what he feels. It doesn't say, and his face fell in dismay and his tears started pouring down his, it doesn't say that kind of stuff. It just says, well, and then he did this and then he did this and then he did this. Now think back to Genesis 22 as an example. God says, you know, take Isaac your only son, whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. And the next thing it says is, and Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went off. How does Abraham feel? We don't know. Which is precisely the genius of it. It's more emotive. It's more powerful as a story. Because it does not give us the details, we must then empathize with the characters, it's inviting us through Hebrew sparseness to enter into the story and go, what, what must that have felt like? Cause if it had said Abraham was sad, it would have cheapened it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so that's a feature of Hebrew narrative that runs throughout and is really important. Hebrew narrative also, it doesn't give it, part of its sparseness is it doesn't give extra detail on, um, not just emotion, but on anything else. So, color what was the color of abraham's robe Mm. who cares right doesn't matter um what was the color of the stew that esau ate from jacob it was red why do we know that it was red why does the bible say so in in hebrew almost very literally esau comes to jacob who's making stew and esau says give me some of that red red almost caveman like and it's just kind of urgency. He's making some sort of red lentil soup and the color red is emphasized. Give me some red red. Why? Well nothing's wasted in Hebrew narrative. So later we'll find out Esau is associated with because of that story and because he seemed to maybe have red hair and be very hairy all over etc. He's renamed to Edom which is the Hebrew word for red which is also the same same letters as the name Adam, who's named because of the earth, Adama, which is kind of red clay, that's the idea. So all of a sudden this whole motif erupts out of that one scene in Genesis where he says, give me some stew, and it has to do with the color red, and it doesn't stop until the book of Obadiah, and it might continue into the New Testament. So everything that Hebrew narrative lays down is vital to understand, or not vital, but important and helpful to understanding the rest of the story. And that's something that's just um, almost stands alone in the world's literature as impressive and artful and lovely as its own. Um, If I had notes, I could probably do a lot, you know, go into a lot more of that.
1: So so, so uh, you're talking about, the one thing that would also be true is there is a grand narrative to the whole of Scripture, right? Right. And, but you're, you're, you're saying you're kind of zooming in on the, the many narratives within scripture and how, when you're reading scripture, you shouldn't just kind of read across the top of it, but you should be looking for the narrative within the mini narrative within the greater narrative. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, so often in Bible reading plans, like where do you stop reading? You start in Genesis. Numbers? Like I'm tired of oh, counting sure. how many people the Israelites set out with from this camp in yes. or whatever. You're like, oh, I'm done. Well, we get tired of the narrative because it feels rote, boring, useless, whatever. But that that's because we're disattuned. That's not a word. Um, we're not tuned to the way that narrative works. And so we can't read what's really happening. So um, I'm preaching Genesis 24 this week. It's a good example Abraham sends his servant up to Haran to find a wife for Isaac, his son. And so the servant goes through this whole um, commissioning from Abraham and then this internal dialogue with the Lord, right? Like, Lord, uh, send out, like, I'm going to ask women at a well uh, who should be the wife. Like, I'm going to ask them to give me a drink. And if it's the one that you want, let her say these things, etc. Then just a few verses later, he repeats that entire huge chunk of dialogue almost verbatim back to Rebecca and Laban and to the Western ear we're like dude we just read this like this is a really long chapter you don't have to say it again right because we're trained in in modern Western rhetoric that repetition is bad so if I were to say again that we're trained in modern Western rhetoric that repetition is bad you'd be like I know you just said that dude right (laughs) Which Exactly. But in Hebrew, it's emphatic. So if I'm saying it twice, listen, like open your ears. And then you start to notice, well, maybe he switched some words around the second time. And it's in the variation in the repetition that we start to see the real color of the story come out. So it's those sorts of things where Hebrew narrative is this beautiful thing that we tend to skip over Uh, We skim read Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges because we're like, yeah, 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 I know the story. But we're missing some incredible, beautiful emphases that lead to Christ
1: that are just, yeah, they're really important. And this would be one of the portals through which you could spend eternity mining for the goods, right? Like there's a lot more going on than even people who really study it. Fully know yet, oh, yeah. correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I want to also ask about the impassibility of God. Is that correct? The impassibility. Yeah. What is the impassibility of God, and why does that matter?
0: Yeah, so this is going back to, um, well, maybe it'll tie in. Um, the impassibility of God is a systematic theological category. It's a, it's a box that we have created to help us understand something of God's character, like the doctrine of the simplicity of God. So it's not uh, it's not a word that we have in the Bible, but it's a lot of theologians attempt to summarize teachings that we glean from the Bible. So the Westminster Confession says that what is authoritative for faith and life is everything written in Scripture and everything that we can deduce from Scripture by good and necessary consequence. Right. So if you can make a logical syllogism from two premises in Scripture— then the result, the conclusion of that logic, is also authoritative. Um, so the impassibility of God has to, it comes from the word passion, and it, it basically means that God has no passions. And then all modern listeners go, what? what does that mean, right? Um, so if we think passion, what we're talking about is the idea of suffering, ultimately. Suffering and, to a lesser extent, emotion. So here's how that doctrine has been abused in recent years, is people saying God has no emotion. He's apathetic. He's a cold, heartless deity, just letting the world do its thing. He doesn't, he's not moved by what's going on. Well, that is contrary to the Bible's teaching. The Bible just constantly is insisting that God not only sees the oppression and suffering of the people here, but he mourns with them. And not only does he mourn with them, he enters into their suffering. And not only does he do that, he he suffers in their place so that they can be redeemed and receive the joy of the Lord. Uh, so that warped view of the doctrine is messed up. God is not apathetic. Um, if God is God, he must be, as we said earlier, the most extreme end of everything that he is, he must be the most loving thing, the most kind thing, the most merciful, the most just, etc. Um, and I think that's really important. So impassibility—what it really means is to two two, uh, two big conclusions for me: one, he is not ruled by emotion. So I am. <laughs> Right. I feel an emotion real strong and I can't help, but I mean, how many of us maybe in our younger days, God willing, put holes in drywall with our fists because we were ruled by an emotion, got in an argument with somebody and got really upset and punched a wall. Right. Um, I've poorly patched a lot of drywall in my days yeah. because <laughs> of that. And that's a sim- a sign as that's a demonstration of us being absolutely ruled by our emotion. Um, God does not lose control to what he feels. He's in total mastery of himself. If one of the fruit of the spirit is self-control, self-mastery, those come from God who has those things in their kind of ultimate expression. Mm -hmm. He is the most self-controlled and in some sense doesn't need self-control. Anyway, um... So he's not ruled by emotion. You see that in the Gospels when Jesus goes to the temple and turns over the tables. Because what does he do? Um, What must logically he have done before he turned over the tables? It says he used a whip to drive people out. Where did he get the whip? It's possible that Jesus went to the temple, saw what was going on. And this is something my friend Chad used to say a lot. Maybe he went down to the marketplace and found the leather vendor and said, hey, give me, give me nine strands of leather about Ye long. And then he measured out the coins and then walked back up the hill to the temple, slowly braiding a whip from this leather. There's something measured and controlled and mastered about that. I see. He didn't just light off. Jesus didn't walk into the temple and lose it. Uh-huh. He knew exactly what he was doing and he was in absolute perfect control. Show me a man like that. I mean you show me a man like that I'll follow him. <laughs> and and to its ultimate expression I'll follow him anywhere, right? Because that kind of self-mastery and passion commingled. What could be better than that? That's the impassibility of God. He is not mastered by his emotions. When he sees the oppression of the wicked, He doesn't jump to their rescue at the exclusion of their future good. How often do we do that? Like we see an immediate problem and our empathy overwhelms us. And we go, I'm going to give you $20 now. Instead of thinking about how can I give them a whole life later, right? Um, Jesus doesn't find himself in that quandary. God is not ruled by emotion like that for good or for ill. He's above that. The other aspect of the impassibility of God is that he is, to be passable is to suffer. And that comes from kind of the old English usage of the word, which means to like receive something from somebody. Um, In other words, to suffer means that you are subject to the control of something else. So for God to be able to suffer in that way means in some sense, he is dependent on external stimulus or stimuli. Um, What we do in the world affects God's godness. And that's not true, right? He's bigger than us. Like one of the Psalms says, uh, God looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He doesn't just look down. He's not like so like us that he can just look around. And he's not just slightly above us that he can look down. He's so different ontologically from who we are. He so doesn't need us that he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. So nothing we do can impact how he feels in the morning, (laughs) right? Like if we go to bed after arguing with our wives, God forbid, I'm sure you never argue with your wife just like I never argue with mine. (laughs) you go to bed, you feel kind of icky. You wake up, you feel kind of icky. You know, time didn't magically heal the thing because we are not impassable. And what other people do and say in this world affects how we move through the world. And that is not true of God. We can't arm wrestle him into being something different or feeling a different way or anything like that. Um, and praise God that we have a God like that.
1: Yeah, that's what I was right? thinking too. That's good news.
0: It's really good news. Yep. yep. He's not bending to the whims of this world yep. like the rest of us are. Now on the flip side, is he apathetic then? Is he cold? And I go back to Genesis 22. How must the father have felt offering up his son? You know? When Jesus screamed, shrieked, From the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. Was the father unmoved? Did he just go, don't worry about it. Resurrection later. I already know it's coming. Jesus knew it was coming too. And felt the full depths of emotion. Emotion isn't a human idea. It's God. It comes from God. All life, truth, goodness, beauty, all of that comes from God. So in some sense and I pause and I think about the Scottish theologian, Donald MacLeod, who said, when he was talking about this, he said, we're at the edges of revelation right now. Um, in some sense, the father himself must have suffered when the son was separated from his life on the cross. Mm. When Jesus was cast into that darkness, was the father unfeeling or was he suffering as well? So I don't know, I'm entering into a debate that is um, raging with people a lot smarter than I am with a lot more degrees than Fahrenheit, Mm -hmm. uh, which I can't compete with, Mm -hmm. but when I read the Bible, it does not allow for a cold, unfeeling God, nor does it allow for a God made in our image, who is at the whim of his emotions. Yeah. It has to be a God enters into our suffering and redeems it from inside out by suffering more than we do
1: on our behalf mm-hmm. and how about the aseity of god what is that mm,
0: yeah aseity. that yeah that so that comes from a lot of places but it comes especially from john oh john can't remember i think it's john 1 uh, the father who is life in and of himself has granted that the son might also have life in himself and grant that to those whom he will something like that. We could find the exact quote and be more accurate and specific. Um, essentially, the doctrine uh, so what a sayity means is um, in and of, in and of himselfness. okay, right? So everything, you and I and you and the, the tree outside and the dog and everything is derivative. Uh, We came from somewhere, and our life is dependent on something else to survive. So the tree without the sun will not live. There is no life for the tree. Uh, You and I, without food and drink and water and whatever, will die. There's no life without that. God has life in and of himself, so he is dependent on nothing, which is why he is the I am. He can just exist prior to anything else existing and is. And he's the only one who's like that. And that's called his aseity. His, that's a Latin word. Um, let me find this other link here. Where did it go? Ah, here it is. John 5. I thought it was 1. It's 5. Jesus says in verse 25 of chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, he the Father has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the judgment of Christ has to do with giving life to some and death to others. And he can give life because he has life in and of himself and therefore can freely distribute it. And he has life in and of himself because the father has granted the son to have life in and of himself. So now we're bending at the edges of human rationality. Mm -hmm. Um, And this this gets into the eternal begottenness of the son, that this didn't happen in his human lifetime. It wasn't, you know, Tuesday, the third of Kislev, God said to the son, now I grant that you have life. The son from eternity past has always been granted of the father that he might be, that he might exist without depending on anything for his existence. And part of that privilege is the right to give life to those who aren't independent. Yes. Is that making any sense? Yes. No,
1: it is. Does Jesus have that right, or does God the Father have that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. The They both have the right, okay. I would argue. Mm-hmm. The son has been given the privilege. So the task of the son is to walk through a graveyard of this world. And, you know, you've seen Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, or read it. Chronicles of Narnia, the end where Aslan goes through the witch's palace and breathes on the stone statues, and they come to life. That's, that's this. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. The footsteps of the Messiah through this world is like through a, a tomb, like a graveyard, and he gets to go, I'm going to breathe on you, I'm going to breathe on you, and everyone on whom I breathe, you will live. Because he doesn't derive his life from elsewhere. Yeah. He is life. Yeah. I mean Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Literally, if life was one thing that you could put your finger on, you'd be touching Jesus. <laughs> That's mm. so where else could we go? That's why Peter says, you know, when he says a hard thing like you have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want to live. And everyone leaves him. And he looks at Peter and goes, are you going to leave too? And he says, where else would I go? You have the words of life. Because life is in him and from him and for him, as Paul would say later. So I love that doctrine. One, because it boggles my mind and takes me to worship because I can't get my head around it. And two, because it comforts me that when I take all of my need and my the dead corners of my heart to Jesus, I am going to the source of life. And he is qualified and capable by decree of the Father to distribute life freely, like candy on Halloween.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and if you're not dependent on anything, you couldn't be taken down either. Mm. <clears throat> right? Would that be another logical conclusion you could get from that? Uh, absolutely. Well, John, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for carving time out of your busy schedule. Absolutely. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, you and Becca are a real – you guys are two special people. You're a real gift to Nashville. Thank you. Um, and I think you've been a gift to people far beyond Nashville. You're a gift to those that you're around. I hope I hope you know that. Well, I appreciate Um that. Thank you. This was last summer, the one before – at one of the staff retreats or whatever, we were out on the boat, Marianne and I, and you and Becca, and just, you know, there wasn't even much time, but we were talking with you guys, and then we were talking about afterwards, and it's like, the life of Christ is really evident in you and Becca. You, oh. You're a formidable couple that are, well, just um, spreading the life of God to those around you, man. Mm. So you keep doing that. Thank you. But I want you to There's know, you're, you're a real gift to... To Nashville. Um, so be encouraged in your work because, you know, we've been around each other for a few years uh, at Emmanuel and then with this church plant. And so I, I kind of feel like I have, you know, somewhat of a front row seat to what you guys are doing at Christ Church. Yeah. And um, it just looks so super promising. I can see God doing a lot of work through you guys in the coming years. I hope so. Yeah, you keep at it. Thank you. Anything else you want to say on here? Love you, man. Okay. Love you, too. Yeah. Thank you very much for being Thank on. you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. We'll close with that. It's Bye, right. everybody. Try to catch me howling out tomorrow.